0: I am going to be introducing this little guy right here, his name is Nona Cat, in case you don't understand where that comes from, that's not like the name of my Italian grandmother Cat. Nona is uh, after Octa, it's a nine-legged cat, um, and that's because we've taken the standard OctaCat in this talk and bolted on an extra arm with some functionality that um, I've found useful in, in my time uh, working on GitHub. <coughs> so who am I? I'm this guy with the puppet. it was a long night in New York City when this happened, don't ask. Um, but uh, I'm a web developer, I've been doing web development for about 16 years. <coughs> two and a half years ago, uh, my programming partner uh, Anthony Baderhorn and I founded uh, an open source project called Glimpse, which you have probably heard about um, at this conference since there was two sessions on it from him yesterday. And uh, a year ago we were approached by Redgate Software to work on Glints full time, so they sponsored our project. What that really means is day in and day out, I'm on GitHub working on my open source project. So I use GitHub a lot, and I like it a lot. Um, So kind of the impetus for this talk uh, was this screen right here. So one of the things that we do uh, with Glimpse is, uh, our community comes and submits issues, and we try to fix them. But we don't do a release every time we fix an issue. Instead, what we do is we have a nightly build and a CI build, and then every two weeks, or as my Australian colleague would say, once a fortnight, um, we actually release real supported bits to NuGet.org. So, what that means is there's sometimes a two week gap between when we fix a user's issue to when we actually make the bits available via the normal channel. So, what we find ourselves doing is saying, you know, we'll close the issue using, you know, like fix hash number, number, number in our commit message that will automatically close the issue. You see this nice little red closed symbol. But then we'll put a comment in there saying hey so and so, we fixed this. It's available here. You can add this NuGet feed of our nightly builds and at 9pm tonight you'll be able to get your fix and then in two weeks you need to upgrade to the real bits to the output, if you want the real bits um, from NuGet.org. And then when we finish the milestone two weeks later we say don't go there anymore. Now here. It's a real pain in the butt. All right, just to get our users the help that they want. So I made a feature request. So this little blue box right there that you might not have even notice isn't actually part of github.com. It was something that I wanted. What I want is I want our continuous integration server to tie right into the issue to tell the users here's where you can go and get the bits. And so of course I don't really have a way of doing that. I can't change github.com from, from where I am. So I busted out Uh, firebug and I mocked this up, took a screenshot of what I kind of wanted to see and tweeted it out. Um, Long story short, it's not gonna happen, but I had a really good conversation with Paul Betts about it, about the merits of it, what was good, what was bad about it, and I think that GitHub has done some similar stuff with a new feature they had uh, called Releases, which uh, solved some of the problems that we were having. Um, But that got me thinking. Uh, GitHub gets a million feature requests every single day, They can't fix all of them. And I realized, wait a minute, this is web software and the web inherently is extensible. That's just part of the way that the web works. I can take some of these things that I want to do into my own hands. Uh, and So that's kind of where we're at uh, with this this talk. So before we go into bolting on that ninth leg onto the Octocat, I want to make sure that we kind of have our bases covered with the first eight legs. Because GitHub already has a bunch of functionality that I find a lot of uh, the people I interact with on GitHub don't actually know about. And those features are extendable in and of themselves. Uh, so the first thing which is Markdown. <clears throat> so Markdown is kind of a, there is, there is a standard syntax for Markdown that John Gruber put together that's Daring Fireball. That's what this link here is for. You can go and read that. You're probably aware of that. GitHub has their own flavor of markdown where they've extended it to do a whole bunch of these extra things. So for example, if I was gonna do a code sample and good old plain classic markdown, I'd put four spaces in front of the code snippet and I'd get some mono width font that looks something like this when you see on the screen. That's really kind of irritating because you gotta put four spaces in front of every single line. Uh, so GitHub has code pens and you put the triple back tip like I'm showing at the bottom there. Uh, and that will actually a of code, that's great. What most people don't realize is you can actually turn on the syntax highlighting on that region of code like this, now it's colorful, do you guys see that? It's like going from, uh, it's like the Wizard of Oz here. Like, oh, I'm in Oz now. Um, 9 a.m., and I'm not Self-deprecating, you guys like that, okay, cool. Uh, So you can see here, all I've added is uh, C-sharp after the backticks, and now I have syntax highlighting because I've told GitHub what language I'm using. And so GitHub does that based on an open source project called Linguist, and you can actually go to Linguist and you can submit a pull request to add the brush of your language of choice. They have the languages I use, so I'm happy, but that's kind of one of those examples where GitHub has these hooks for extensibility, and they're just asking for you to come and make a change. Uh, so Markdown is, is really powerful uh, in general. They do a lot of stuff with Markdown. Uh, actually, let me here where I'm at. <clears throat> uh, one of the other things that they do with Markdown is emoji. I don't really understand why emoji got so popular, but I do like it. It's good for me to put a smiley face after I write a really angry message in an issue, and that means everything's okay, right? I'm not really mad, because I put a smiley face. Um, and people do crazy things with emoji. This is the first sentence of the book, Moby Dick, because the entire thing has been translated to emoji. And so you can go online and buy Emoji Dick, which is this giant book of these characters. I really badly just want to copy and paste all of Emoji Dick and drop into somebody's issue one day, um, just to see what they would do, but I haven't done that. Um, but I do find myself using emoji because I try to be a funny guy. And so I really like this website here. Oh, I, I like to use this website here, this is EmojiCheatSheet.com, and at any point I can just come and find some little emoji like, I like this little neckbeard guy right here, I'm going to go ahead and click on it, that gives me the actual emoji, this is everything that GitHub supports plus a bunch of other systems, and then I can go and paste it in. I do a lot of work with, with Markdown, um, so I actually would recommend that you guys think about going and getting an offline Markdown editor, for Windows, I really like this Markdown Pad 2 one, and I'll show you why. Because if I come in here to Options, and I go to Markdown, you will notice, oh, you will notice that I have the option of GitHub Flavored Markdown. I totally <coughs> that. So you can see here, I'm doing all these fancy <coughs> fancy things like checkboxes that uh, GitHub Flavored Markdown adds, and yes, I can use my NetBear emoji here, and it will. So uh, you know that's, that's pretty useful if you're doing a lot of stuff like that. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a problem in my Markdown is, an os- is another way that GitHub allows you to kind of hook into the Chrome of their application. So you're probably already familiar that if you put a file called readme.markdown at the root of your repo, uh, GitHub will render it right on the home page, so that's what you're looking at here. This is just a markdown file. But also, let me go ahead and go over here to issues. I'm gonna go ahead and create a new issue. You'll notice I get this little link right here. You might not have this on your own repositories, uh, so please re- review the guidelines for contributing. That's because I put another markdown file in my repo called contributing.markdown. And once that file's there, that little feature kind of lights up and it will send all of my users here so they can understand how they should be interacting with our project before they go ahead and create an issue. So That saves us a lot of time, and so that's all good. Uh, another thing that I really like, kind of in this vein of making sure we understand that the first eight, eight legs before we come on to the next one, is that GitHub itself has a bunch of keyboard shortcuts built into it. So if you're sitting on it all day long like I am, it becomes really handy. So I'm going to press GC, which is GitHub code, and you'll notice I move over to code. I can press T and start typing the name of a file. Live Clams Runtime, and I will actually then I can go up and down. You can't see the highlighting probably on the screen, and I can select that file, and now I'm looking at that file. That's really handy. I actually get thrown off sometimes because Control T is my keyboard shortcut for sharper, and then I'll just type in like all the uppercase letters to shorten it down. So I'll type in like GR for Clams Runtime. That does not work on GitHub. I wish it did, Uh, but it's really nice. I can press GI and move over to Issues. I can press C to create a new issue. I do not want to change my color scheme. Sure, why not? Um, or I can also start replying to this. This is actually really handy. I'll be reading this, and let's see, I'm going to take this, this one thing that they said right here. I'm going to highlight it, and I'm going to press R for reply, and it instantly takes whatever text was highlighted and puts it into a block quote for me to respond to. So these are all just little kind of tips and tricks, which is what most of this talk is going to be. This talk is going to be about tips and tricks for you to improve your your GitHub workflow. Uh, So let's go ahead and move on to the next way to start extending GitHub. And so there's a lot of products and tools out there that will extend it based on convention. So one of my favorite um, is 5minutefork.com and it works on file name conventions. So 5Minute Fork is very simple. It's made by a guy named Rip, Remy Sharp, who's uh who's big in the, the front end of web building. <coughs> so here's his website. Uh, and essentially what you do is you tack on the, the username and repository right at the end. So you just swap out github.com for five minutefork.com. And so what that what that'll look like is here's a repository of mine. This is called OSS. Um, OS presentation quick start guide to teach developers how to get involved in open source software. I gave this talk at NBC a couple of months ago, but you'll notice I've added into my readme.markdown this view now button. This is just an image that's in my repository, and if you see the, if you can see the, the status uh, of where this link is going to go, it's just going to go to 5 So when I click on that, 5 Fork literally clones my repository, to a web server and serves up index.html. So just by one click, I don't have to have any hosting or anything like that, boom, here's my presentation and you can actually go through and see my whole presentation on on, on open source software development. Um, so 5-Minute Fork is, is pretty cool for that kind of stuff. <coughs> yeah, I didn't really think through these animations with the stopping and <coughs> The, the next convention that I find very powerful, particularly in our project, because we have a mix of, of developers and non-developers, I guess, and designers who help us out with some to time for is conventions around issue tags. And so if you name your tags a certain way, then the functionality on whoboard.com will light up. So what whoboard.com is, is kind of kind of like Trello, it's a, a Kanban board that's built on top of issues. So if I go ahead and log in here, I'm going to go to my Scratch Pad repository. Uh, and this repository is just a place where I play around and, and tweak things on GitHub. So what you can see is I have some issues that are unassigned, like cleanup spelling mistakes, I can move that over here, that's, that's an issue, and I can assign it to myself and then I can move it over here so that I'm working on it. And then maybe when I'm done, with it, I'll move it over to done. And this is kind of a live update and everybody can kind of focus in and see what the rest of the team is working on all in one place. That's really nice. And if I come over here and I look at Scratchpad and I go to issues, what was the name I wanted to move around? Clean up spelling mistakes. You'll now see that cleanup spelling mistakes is marked as done and I'm the person that's assigned to it. Um, so it's just interacting with the GitHub API and giving it to you in maybe a more familiar uh, representation if you're kind of a project manager type of person or have to work with with those types of people. And lastly, on conventions, I'll talk about gists. I find this one to be extremely powerful, but a little bit limited in the fact that it really only applies if you're doing a JavaScript-based project. So JS (coughs) allows you to sit on top of some conventions in your gists. So let me show you what that looks like. You can see all these tabs I have to open in Firefox. <coughs> when there's no more, you get to leave. So, so here's a gist. Um, I picked, uh, the user has basically named all of the different pieces of the gist fiddle.something. So fiddle.html, fiddle.css, fiddle.js. If you've ever used JS fiddle, those are kind of the regions where you can put code snippets in, and then users can execute them. So, there's also this fiddle.manifest, which is a YAML file, which is YAML, a markup language, or something like that. It's, just, it's, just, it's a human readable configuration syntax. You can think of it as better than XML. Um, so we can take this fiddle, which is 606699, and build a URL based on that convention. And go to JS Fiddle, and now you can see that the job of the HTML that I have here gets sucked in a place there. Here's my CSS, here's my JavaScript. And now I can actually run this JavaScript and things happen. Uh, this actually happened on the Window load anyway. There you go, you just saw it change. So I find this really cool is yes, you could just go ahead and put a code sample right into your, your README file. But why put a code sample, if you have a library, like think about underscore or jQuery, saying like, here's a code sample, or click this button, and it actually takes you to a place in JSFiddle where you can start playing around with the API, and you're giving your user output. So I'm trying to convince Justin Rusbatch, who makes Compilify.net, which is the JSFiddle equivalent for C to build this functionality into that. Because um, I could see that being really handy, especially because on .net kind I do a lot of C Sharp. So those are things that you can do that are convention-based with GitHub and some of the surrounding properties. Uh, Next we have standards. So I'm a web guy, which means we have a lot of these ideals for how the world should be. We think everything should be based on open standards. Um, And for the most part, GitHub leverages those standards where appropriate. The others too, I'll actually I made the slides. So I'll show you both of them. <laughs> so we're going to talk about syndication. We're going to talk about open search. So if I go to GitHub, I'm going to use source on this page. There's two things I want to show you that show up in this head section. We're going to find <coughs> search, and you'll, so you'll see that they have this open search XML file. This is all that is. So this is an open standard that describes to browsers how a given web application's search engine works. So what that means is because this file is there, when I'm on github.com, I can click on this little drop-down that shows up in your browser, that shows you the search engines you have available. And I've already added github, but if I had it, it would say add github. It lights up because the browser finds that standard. So what that means now is I can click on GitHub and I can start doing searches. Like I'll do a search for at MD23, which is my handle, and boom, there's all of my repositories. So I don't have to take that extra step to go to github.com and then do the search. I can do it straight away from my browser anywhere uh, where I'm at. So I find that to be very handy. And there's a whole bunch of different of things that you can do in GitHub uh, to filter what repositories you're looking for, what issues you're looking at, et cetera, et cetera. They all work through this open source search protocol as well, so you get it built right into your browser. Another standard is, you guys have all heard of RSS and Atom, because you probably use it for blogs. Let me go ahead and look at the page source here. Now I actually wish that GitHub did up a little bit more, I actually wish they could a little bit more with syndication, because I can only find a way to get the syndication of commits, but I can't find a way to get a syndication of activity with issues. Maybe there's a security concern there that I don't, that I don't know about, but let me go ahead and get that URL. There we go. master.atom, master obviously referring to the name of my branch. So I can come here, see all my commit activity. Okay, not really interesting, I'm not gonna drop that into feedly, since we can't use Google Reader anymore. Uh, But because it's such an open standard, that means it plays really nicely with a bunch of other things. So for example, I can come over here to ifs, and I can create a recipe, where I say if this feed I'm gonna go ahead and do a speed that matches something. I'm gonna say if the word fix shows up, it means somebody's just committed a fix to my repository, I'm gonna trigger an action. And there's all these different things that I can do with that action. Now, I could make it text me or something like that. I, I, I really like making things in the physical world happen because of things on the internet. So I could use like this link uh, channel that they have, which is a little USB key that you stick into the side of your machine, it's multicolored lights. So I can literally start making, uh, my computer start blinking red, like a hard drive every time I get a commit message or there's a fix. Or even better, that I can come down here to this Milken Wemos uh, switch, I can have to plug into the wall over there with a lamp plugged into it as kind of a proxy adapter and it will literally turn the lamp on or off when a fix comes in. So I can start getting this, this feedback in my environment all because we're just leveraging RSS. I didn't do anything specific to GitHub. I'm just using extensibility of a better platform. Uh, so I find that to be pretty cool. I, I, I did buy one of these little blink things to, to show you guys in a demo, but it didn't arrive in time. So, just pretend it's blinking over here happening. Uh, it wouldn't matter. I didn't build it. Cool. Are you, are you guys enjoying these little these little tips, people kind of learning things? Right. I usually like tips, talks, so hopefully everybody comes away learning something. Uh, The next thing to consider is browser extensions. Now, there are a bunch of browser extensions out there for Chrome and Firefox that will tell you, like, show you your notification count, let you click on a link and get you straight to your notifications, stuff like that. That's that's quite handy. But I kind of have a fundamental issue with the idea of browser extensions because they're proprietary to the platform that they're in. Um, And as this open standards web hippie that I am, um, I prefer something a little bit more um, based on standards. So there's kind of a loophole around this uh, to me, and that's user scripts. So user scripts are just JavaScript files that you can kind of tack onto the page that's currently running, Uh, and they work in both Chrome and Firefox. You've got to install an extension to get this functionality in Firefox, which is called uh, Greasemonkey, and and it's built in natively to Chrome, although I use an extension that helps you manage the scripts in Chrome called Tampermonkey. So userscripts.org is a great place to go, and I can just do a search for GitHub, and you'll find that a bunch of people have already done a bunch of scripts that do all kinds of random odds and ends that will kind of help you. I've actually made my own script, which I'll show you. Let me go back to that scratchpad repo that I have. Now, one of the most common frustrations that I've heard people tell me when we have this conversation about how great GitHub is, is they wish that there was the ability to do voting on issues, right? We kind of want almost a user voice style experience. I, I'm actually pretty sure that GitHub used to have that functionality and they removed it. Well, what I realized is I don't actually really need something cold long for support because there's already people putting in the emoji thumbs up and the emoji thumbs down, right? And that, to me, is a vote for yay, yay or nay. So what I've done is I've created uh, a, a user script, which you might not be able to tell because I, I try to make it look like it just fit. But you'll notice I actually do have voting on my issues because I'm running this user script. And if I go in and say, you'll you also notice it shows me how many votes I have here. I'm gonna say, yay, really like good spelling. One one, okay. That That was all. I I get it, it was solved. And so now you'll see that I have one vote on that. So I can kind of keep track of both up and both down. That's actually pretty simple to do. So here's my little um, web uh, Grease Monkey plugin that I'm running in Firefox and make it work in Firefox. I'm gonna go ahead and manage my scripts. I have two of them. We're gonna look at this issue voting one. Let me edit this script. And you can see here that we have some pretty standard JavaScript down here and all I'm doing is using the power of jQuery to manipulate the DOM I'm calling the GitHub API to to read the comments and parse out the plus ones and the minus ones and I'm keeping track of the votes Uh, When you do a Grease Monkey script you have to provide some metadata for the script so you can see here I have a name of the script, where it came from, which is my my blog URL a description and we also have this at include um, which is a pattern matching expression that lets the browser know when to run my script. So my script actually only runs when you're on an issues page. Anywhere else in GitHub, you have no overhead of the script running. Uh, so it's pretty handy, very simple to do, and this works across browser. Uh, if you like this, I have it available on my GitHub page. Uh, it's uh, github mp 23 slash uh, voting scripts. So that is user scripts, I find it be handy. I actually have another one that you, that you noticed um, that we'll, we'll see a little bit later. Alright, so that's good. Those, kind, those things are all, I don't know, they're, they're all a little hokey. They're all kind of like very specific for a, a certain user at a certain time, but I'm slowly ratcheting up the power of, of what we can change in GitHub. <coughs> GitHub supports this idea Of something called (laughs) webhooks. Web web webhooks is a a a term that was coined by a guy named Jeff Lindsay, who's on the board of directors at Runscope, actually, if you guys saw John Sheehan's talk yesterday. And and he describes webhooks as so simple that you'll think it's stupid. Um, which which is which is kind of funny. Um, but but it's also kind of true. So a webhook is almost the opposite of a web API. So a web API typically you would think of as there's an endpoint up in the cloud, I want data from it, I'm gonna go and ask for data. And you might have to poll for that data occasionally to get more and more. A webhook is notification based, it's push based. So when event happens on some web application I use, I want them to tell me about it. So like a lot of payment processors do this, really the first example I knew of in a while they did something like webhooks was PayPal. They would let you know as the merchant when somebody bought something from your store and say, "Hey, you know, we just captured 50 bucks for you." And then they would tell you by essentially doing a HTTP post to some public URL that you would set up. So it's pretty simple. Now this is another extensibility point for GitHub. Um, so here's webhooks. Video on webhooks stuff at webhooks.org. You want to learn more about it. So I'm going to go ahead and go to GitHub. Here we 3 do this two Clips. And so if you go into settings on your repository and go to service hooks, that's um, GitHub has kind of generic name webhooks. You'll see there's a ton of different services already on the internet available for you to just use. And this is another extensibility point. So if you're building a service that you want GitHub to be able to push notifications to, you can come in to their webhook repository and uh, write some functionalities. Like if I click on Basecamp, let's see this form pops up. You can actually do a pull request to create your own form. And then a user will fill this out. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. So I use HipChat. HipChat shows, that off so token and have to cancel it now. HipChat is a chat room that we'll use to communicate about once. So you can see here, here's my hit chat room. It says that I joined it. Oh, and you can see here at 10.26 AM that uh, somebody commented on an issue. Uh, and the reason that happened is because we have the service hook set up. So if I go ahead and hit test hook, GitHub just pushed did an HTTP post to HipChat. HipChat got that and will drop it into our chat room. They should drop it into our chat room. Chat. Okay. Interesting. I don't know why it's not showing up. It usually does. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll do you one better. Um, so debugging these things can be a little difficult. So I'm gonna come over here to request bin. I'm gonna create a new request bin. And this gives me a URI. All request bin does is capture a post that comes into that URI and dumps it out for you. So I'm gonna go back over here to GitHub. I'm gonna set up just a generic webhook that all I need is a URL. I'm gonna update those settings. And now I'm gonna test that hook So GitHub should have just done a post, but if I come back over here to request bin and refresh, boom, that's actually what GitHub posted to me. So you can see that there was a parameter called payload, and here's the JSON, and you can see a bunch of commit SHA's and all of the work that we did and what they posted to us. Um, So that's really handy uh, for testing. One of the challenges with webhooks is doing local development because I'm running something on local hosts, you know, some port number. GitHub has no way of posting to that, so I don't have a good way of testing webhook handling code that I've written locally. I'd have to deploy it. So there's tools to get around this. Um, There's a bunch of them. The one that I like is called PageKite. Uh, I particularly like PageKite because they make it uh, is a service that you have to pay for, but they make it freely available to open-source developers. Um, and just a little plug here while I'm at it. I started up this website a few weeks ago called lssperks.com. And this is a listing of all the different companies that give away their products to open-source developers. The will link to where you go to request a license for that thing. So there's licenses and services. So if your company um, gives away some product to open-source developers, um, just come and make a pull request to this. I'm trying to keep track of all of them in one place. And you'll see, PageKite is on there. So what I can do with PageKite is I can test locally. So let me go ahead and start up this website right here. This is something called Signatory.io. I'm going to do a full demo of this a little bit later. This is an extension that I've made on top of GitHub for managing contributor license agreements. Uh, but part of the way that that works is via a web app. So you can see here that I'm now running Signatory on localhost. Port 51692, and I'm debugging. So I've gone ahead and set a breakpoint in my web app. This is localhost, so GitHub has no way of getting back to me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to come to PageKite. What was that? Port <coughs> 51692. 51692. Yep. And I'm going to put in my PageKite uh, URL. PageKite. So PageKite is now going to create a tunnel between my local web server on that port and their public web server on port 8. And so it says uh, kites are flying and all is well, which means that I no longer need to be at localhost, instead I can go to that URL nicknp23.pagekite.me and nothing changes. I'm just now coming through the public internet Into my machine, and my machine is serving that up. Which means if I come back over here to my webhooks stuff on GitHub, go to settings here on Scratchpad, go to service hooks, web URLs, I already have a bunch of them in here. Let me add the URL for my hook. Hub, should go to page type, which should come down to my local box, which should hit IIS Express, should hit this breakpoint. Oh. Oh, Are you sure the endpoint is correct? Is correct? the action this webhook? Yeah, no, but the route is hook. Okay. That is a good thought. Let me see if I can do it without getting hit on the ball. Still shows the same point. Oh, that can of become sick yet. Yeah. Here. Test the hook. Okay. Well, I'm going to go ahead and move on. I think you guys get the point. You can see that I am actually um, going through the internet, getting back to the site. That's that's how you test those things. Uh, but you know, networks get finicky sometimes. So. Oh, you know what? It could actually be blocked. Okay, so anyway, webhook, failure, moving on. So the next thing I want to talk about is the GitHub API. This is kind of the granddaddy of them all for making changes to GitHub. It's obviously well supported, there's a lot you can do with it. The first thing you have to know about GitHub to understand the, their API is OAuth. Now uh, GitHub actually, uh, it does a pretty good job of influencing the uh, standard um, and if you're doing .NET development, it's really easy if you just use a package called world-domination-authentication I'm not joking, uh, it's made by a guy named Jir Chrome. Uh, you, you, uh, it kind of handles all the bits for you and what you end up doing Let me show you, you do this kind of pseudo-controller thing where this has handled all the hard work for you and you just handle what happens in the authentication case. So you can see here, I'm very easily getting uh, the access token. This access token is kind of an opaque string that allows you to make requests on the behalf of a user to GitHub. Uh, and uh, with that, you can do whatever you want to, uh, except for the fact that you have to ask for permissions. So by default, you can do anything that, that you can do publicly as a user, just screwing around with the repository, but uh, in this application signatory I've asked for a little bit more advanced uh, permissions, so that way I can do something um, called setting a uh, commit status. So let me show you what that looks like, clean up something that don't need anymore. Mm-hmm. Alright, so I am on signatory IO now, this is the public live version, you can go and use this right now, it's in beta, i built this as a demo app for this talk, but it's very useful. So I'm leaving it out there for anybody who wants to use it. So I've logged in using OAuth, and I can go and I can see all my repositories. I can also go and see something like Dolby Cain's repository. There we go. There's that guy in the back with the glasses. Um, so I'm gonna come over here to Scratchpad, which is Playground repo, and I'm gonna go to settings, and you can see here, I have enabled a contributor license agreement on that repository. I went to another one of my repositories. Settings, I have not enabled that. I can come in here and I can say require, and I have to put in an access token. That access token, you can get from GitHub. go to the settings for your account. go over to applications and you'll be able to grab an access token or create a new one uh, you can pass that over. So these access tokens don't expire like the ones I get when I have you log in via OAuth by clicking the sign in button on that website uh, and I need that because I don't know when I'm going to be writing to your repository um, I'll just do this second. So, okay, so I have that set up and my scratch pad scratchpad repo is set up to require a contributor license agreement. So let me show you what that means. I'm going to come over here to nickmd 23 scratchpad and we're going to make a change. Uh, So to do that, I'm going to create a new branch that we'll call monkey. So that's created a new branch called monkey. I'm on that branch. Let's just go ahead and make a change to readme. And edit it. not nice. <laughs> Go ahead and send pull requests. Now watch what happens. Because signatory is there, when I just committed, when I just hit submit pull request, GitHub has made a webhook post request to signatory.io on that webhook thing that I tried to test a little bit, a little bit ago. Um, signatory.io has checked in its database to see if I have signed the contributor license agreement for Scratchpad and realized that I have not. It then uses the GitHub API to call out and say, "Hey, that commit that just came in, that's not a good commit." And here's the reason why. So what ends up happening, as you'll see, is we have this error that shows up in GitHub that says, "This repository requires a signed Contributor's License Agreement. Click the details to sign up." And so now, if I go ahead and click on details. That's going to take me to signatory I.O. You'll notice on my Nick 23 slash scratchpad, I'm looking at that repository and the sign page. So here's the text that I put in as my contributor license agreement. I can fill in my information. One, two, three, easy streets, USA, USA, USA. I'm going to sign. It looks a little bit easier on, on an iPad. Let me go ahead and hit save. Cool. So I've now signed the contributor license agreement for Scratchpad. The collaborators that run that project can go and get that data and download it. If I go back to GitHub and refresh this pull request, ta-da, we are good to merge because Nick MD23 has signed this CLA. So on the Quince project, we actually require all of our contributors to sign a contributor's license agreement. Uh, Has anybody here ever signed a computer license agreement when they made a request? Okay, most of the people in the room. I would imagine that before something like this existed, that meant you got some PDF that maybe you had to print out and sign or you just like wrote a bunch of information in an email. You sent it over to the collaborator on the project and it was kind of a big pain in the butt. That's what we have. We have this form that we send to people. They have to fill it out and sign it and then scan it. Some guy tried to fax it back to us, I was like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> so we, we, we made signatory.io, or I named signatory.io because I wanted to extend that. I want that functionality to be GitHub, but it doesn't have to be because it's a web app and I can just extend it myself. all um, right. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of what I wanted to show you with signatory. I think it's cool. You can go and start using signatory I.O. now. It's open source as well. So in T23 signatory. Uh, I have a bunch of things I want to do with it. If you find any uh, any issues or whatever, feel free to open up an issue, send in a pull request. I don't have the ability for a collaborator to download data yet, but that will be coming soon. Sebastian? How do you submit the pull request if you don't have signatory working? Okay. Signatory does not require a contributor license agreement. that's not. <laughs> <laughs> So, but yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna do that just for years. The uh, <laughs> we'll, <end laughs> we'll the problem there. Okay, so let's get back to the beautifully designed slides. Huh. So, I have a couple of bonus tips that I wanted to share. These really have nothing to do with GitHub. I actually wish that GitHub used a standard called Bowen bed that would make what I'm about to show you a little bit nicer. Uh, they don't, and I understand why they don't. And I actually can see it being a problem. Um, but I do a lot of communications through issues, and a lot of talk, particularly what we'll be talking about, some architecture, some brand idea, and that's hard to put into English <laughs> sometimes. I just wish I could like grab my contributor in Belgium, hold him into my apartment, and draw on a whiteboard for five minutes. That's all I really want to do. So I have taken to using a lot of diagrams and trying to inject those into issues. And there's not a really easy way of doing that. So here's one that I had with um, Brendan Forrester. And this guy, he's just, he just missing a couple of screws. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <coughs> actually this is not the issue I want to show you guys, but it is one that I have. With So we were going back and forth and having this conversation about how um, we have this very theoretical thing called semantic release notes that we're working on, which is putting a little bit more semantics on Markdown. So think uh, writing Markdown in a very specific way, so that when you release a piece of software, we can auto-generate the release notes for that. Oh no. GitHub down? <laughs> So we're going back and forth, having this conversation. We all have all of these different ideas, and then I drop this message on him. And when I did that, I think he even, I think he approved. Yeah. <laughs> it was so beautiful. I was crying. So I, I did that, and I made this little table here that showed exactly what I was talking about and how it should work. And kind of a light bulb went off for everybody on on this thread, and we got it. And that's when I really realized the power of pictures, right? Sure, says a thousand words, and that's really true. So I did not painstakingly create this uh, dash by dash and pipe by pipe. I used a tool for that. So um, asciiflow.com is kind of this great tool where you can just go and start drawing things like this and be like header. Well, oh, let me put text in here. Header. Nah. Um, and then you can kind of rearrange and see. It's kind of like like. Photoshop for ASCII, and when all is said and done, you can go ahead and hit export and copy this, and you drop it inside of a ring fence, a uh, code reading fence with triple back ticks, and boom, you get what I, what I had in that issue. So, uh, ASCII flow is quite powerful. Um, sometimes I've found the need to step it up a little bit more, and so that's where something like web sequence diagrams comes in. Now, WebSequence diagrams is, to me, is just genius. So you can see here that they have this tiny little domain specific language where I'm saying, knit to Monkey Space, show you guys the diagram tools, and then I have a note that says that issues are better the whole world over now that you have know about these diagram tools. And then monkey space goes to GitHub and they start adding diagrams to all of their issues. And so just by adding in that kind of text, it generates this image. And so you can get a link to this image and you can drop that right into your repository and boom, now you have a nice sequence diagram. You can also change the style if you want to look a little bit more nerdy, right? If you're really corporate, boom, there you go, IBM. (laughs) If you're still doing oldschool.net, here we go, Visual Studio 2010. Uh, And then the really nice thing about this is that link, for that image, you can just put right back to this website, and you can come in and start changing. Uh, let's say me to me. You can start changing this diagram because it's just text based. Um, I wish there was OEmbed support, so I could just take this text, drop it right into the issue, and GitHub would use the OEmbed specification to get the image for that and drop it into the issue. Um, and when I go to edit, I could do that. So uh, I can start screwing around with that. Um, Kind of in the same vein is this memo phone. Memofon.com, I know it might be hard to see the URL. This uses markdown, but instead of generating a document, generates a mind map that you can kind of see. So this is really good for exploring what features we want to add, uh, what concerns we have with a given issue, So you can see all kinds of examples here of crazy things that they've done. They even do these calculations where it will automatically do math for you. So you can see here that we're we're summing up tax and rent um, and it kind of builds up this tree. So you can do some pretty interesting things here and then once again, just take a link to this, put it back into your issue and everybody can kind of be talking about the same assets. Um, So that is the bonus material that I had for you. And that is really all that i had. Here's my contact information. If you guys have any questions, we have a couple of minutes left for questions. Yes, sir. So when you were playing with Signatory, I was kind of thinking about branch specific commits. Right. Okay. You know, like yeah, I want to lock down my master branch and I thought All right, I could just like not let them, you know, never approve their license agreement. Is that a way to hack into that? Into setting permissions at a branch level? So, technically yes. <laughs> R- realistically, probably not. So, so the way that that signatory works, the backbone of it was really getting that kind of like gray failed bar and the green good good to go bar. That's a commit status. Every commit in your repository can have multiple statuses. And if you use the API of, uh, from GitHub, you can find out the status of every single commit. Unfortunately, actually probably fortunately, I'm, I'm kind of okay with this. You only see that status uh, appear in the UI of GitHub in a pull request. So you can go ahead and put status on all, every commit that comes in, but if there's not a pull request associated with it, you're not gonna visually see it. You could write a tool to visualize that for yourself, or a signatory could build on something like that. Um, but typically, I wouldn't recommend, particularly for contributor license experience, that you would put that on a given branch. I mean, I guess we'd have to talk about what your branch strategy is, but the most common branch strategy is like feature branch or release branch, you're probably going to want a CLA to go across all of those. A CLA is also kind of a really dangerous thing to treat as um, mutable. You kind of want to put it out there and have it, be, have it set. If you're changing your CLA over time, it can make things really complicated from a legal perspective if you're not careful. Uh, you, you can do it, but call a lawyer. Don't talk to me. So, uh, Any other questions? All right, cool. Thank you guys very much. I appreciate it. Check out Stephen tutorial.